When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, the pigs lived and roamed in the forests and meadows. They were free and they were happy, but they were not content because they perceived that they could be more. They knew that it was their lot in life to be prey for carnivores, and they accepted that, for they themselves were opportunistic predators of smaller creatures. But when they assessed their situation, they realized that they were not prospering as a species. Their females had one litter each year with two or three or maybe four piglets. Frequently, one piglet was eaten by a hawk or a fox. One might be taken partly grown by lions, tigers, and bears, or maybe by humans. Disease and pestilence were prevalent. Few, if any, of the species died of old age. The pigs noticed that when they were killed by lions, tigers, and bears, they were run down, jumped on, and torn apart, and it was a terrifying and agonizing death. When they were killed by humans, they were ambushed and hit with arrows or spears, and death was swift and they never saw it coming. So they approached the humans with a proposition. The basic terms of the contract were these. The pigs agreed to become domestic animals. The humans agreed to use their technology to help the pigs prosper as a species. The pigs would help advance human causes by contributing to the production of food, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, soap, paper, paint, and beer. The humans would provide the pigs with sucker safety, comfort, and well-being. And when the time should come for, the, for them to die, they must never see it coming. The contract continues in force to this day, and we must live up to the terms it provides. That was our contract with pigs, and it was written by our guest today, Bob Huntsberger. Bob is a swine feed sales rep at Wallenstein Feed and Supply. He is a board member with Conestoga Meats. He's a pig farmer, and as you can tell, he's passionate about the hog industry. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So when did you write that? Uh, my son and I wrote that. He's a better writer than I am. We wrote that about 10 years ago. Okay, slightly less well-known than God Made a Farmer, but... Much less well-known than God Made a Farmer. <laughs> well, may- maybe being on the Ontario AgCast will we'll change that. Maybe that'll become part of the popular uh, media now. <laughs> Bob, this is kind of a nice change for me. Mostly when I have guests on the show... I make jokes about how much younger they are and, and, you know, how I'm old enough to be their father, but I'm not old enough to be your father. No, I'm old enough to be your father. <laughs> See, nice change. <laughs> okay, For you, you For might Paul. think so. All right, well, you're going to lend a little more perspective on some of the history of the swine industry and tell us a little bit, you know, way, way back when you were a kid, what life was like on the farm. Back when Hector was a pup. When Hector was a pup, yep. Well, my parents actually bought their own farm in uh, 1948, in the spring of 1948, and I grew up on that farm. And we, just this past spring, the spring of 2017, sold the farm. And uh, we still have a farm that we live on, 
but not the one that my parents had. Geographically, the farm is located between two villages at the north end of Waterloo. The villages are called Winterburn and Conestoga. The driveway on that farm runs up a hill, and if you stand at the top of the hill, you can see the world headquarters for Blackberry. It's close to the city. It's closer to the city than it was when you were a kid. That's right. And that's some of the changes that I think are are really neat to think about. Because you talk about standing there and being able to see the, the world headquarters of Blackberry, somewhat diminished today from where they have been. But you're in an area where there's a lot of farms, Mennonite, Old Order, and yet they are neighbors with sort of the most high-tech hub that we have here in Ontario, arguably Canada. Yes. So what kind of farm was it when you were a kid? Well, when my parents bought the farm, Dad was um, milking cows. He had a small dairy herd. He actually shipped cream. I still have a cream can with his name stamped in it. He sold the dairy herd, I don't remember exactly when, but not too long after. He didn't stay with milking cows that long. He started a beef cow herd, and he always had a few pigs. When he was milking cows and shipping cream, of course, the pigs got the skim milk. They lived in the straw shed and uh, went out into the orchard and ate fallen apples and things like that. And mom and dad also always had chickens as well. So they started out with a couple of colony houses. You know what those are, Wendell. You're you're old enough to remember what those are. Barely. Barely. And then he uh, constructed some chicken pens, I guess, for lack of a better word, in, uh, in the bank barn. And in the mid-1950s, he built a specialized barn for laying hens. Right, high-tech. High-tech, although that it was before cages were invented, so it did not have cages in it. So free-run layers before they were marketed as free-run layers. <laughs> yeah, but when cages were invented, he saw that as quite an improvement and uh, installed them in his uh, layer barn. What were the improvements? Better health better egg quality. The eggs were kept cleaner and uh, and lower labor. So better for the chickens, better for food safety, and better for the farmer. That's right. And now we're going the other way. Yes. Okay, so then what was Bob like as a teenager? Like most other teenagers, happy to drive tractors and do farm work. Really happy when, uh, when he got his driver's license <laughs> and could uh, drive a car. What was your first car? Well, my dad had a, when I learned to drive, I guess he had a Studebaker, 1958 Studebaker. We advanced in the world when he bought a 1963 Pontiac. Neither Studebaker nor Pontiac even exist anymore. <laughs> so did you go to Guelph? I did. Uh, dad had a, had, a theory that, um, had a theory that you were not ready to go to university until you had done a full year of work on the farm. And so uh, my brother referred to that as grade 14. <laughs> and uh, during grade 14, I bought bull calves from dairy farmers and raised them for dairy beef to generate some money to help pay for university education. And then I went to Guelph, graduated with a degree in agricultural economics. Oh, another economist. Another economist. Just what we needed. Yeah. Okay, so you get out of Guelph. As an economist, plan to go back to the farm? Uh, yeah, I tried to actually, I applied for a job with one of the major feed companies of the day and uh, didn't get hired. 
So I uh, went back to the farm. Right. Got a, got a few more years of education in. <laughs> and actually, before I graduated from Guelph, my father, in conjunction with another friend of his or business associate of his, had bought a farm that was a specialized hog farm. And it's the farm where my wife and I now live and where we have lived ever since. Well, in fact, I lived there before we got married. That's where we raised our family and where we still live. So you've been a hog farmer for quite some time. I've been a hog farmer since the spring of 1968. Remember that? Uh, no. The spring of 68? <laughs> I don't remember the spring of 68. No? Not, no, sorry. This is the first time I can say this on this show. That's before my time, Bob. No. Really? It is. 72. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're a young pig farmer just starting out in life. Tell us about how you got involved in sort of the political side of the swine industry. I think that um, we had discussions with colleagues in the industry um, about what it takes to live up to our contract with the pigs to help them produce more meat, more food, better quality meat, more efficiently. Proper welfare, animal care. yeah. Yeah. But I think one of the things we need to pay more attention to as a swine industry is animal welfare. I don't think we have spent enough time asking the pigs exactly what they want and how they like to live. We've given them safety and uh, comfort, we think, but we don't know enough about animal welfare yet. And I think it's one of the things we should keep studying. Yeah, right. Don't fight progress but make sure that the things that we are, are doing to improve animal welfare are actually improving animal welfare. Give, give me an example. Like, where are you out on farrowing crates, for instance? I think that they are a benefit to the pigs and to the people. I think that they prevent overlaying of piglets. They save piglets' lives. And sometimes and during the stress of birthing piglets, sows may attack piglets. And so it it helps save save piglets' lives. And yet, that's one of the animal welfare things that's being pushed for change the most. Yeah. And in fact, the change that's being proposed may actually be to the detriment of the piglets. Yeah. Although one of, one of the things I remember early from the 1970s, one of my friends and mentors, he had farrowing crates that were hinged. The front end, if you think of a farrowing crate with a sow standing facing one direction, at the head end, they were hinged, and at the back end, they were pinned. So you could remove the pins and swing the sides open and turn it into a pen. It still allowed creeps for the piglets to get out of the way of the sow, and he would open those crates. When the piglets were, say, let's say a week or ten days old, and the sow could turn around and move around more in the crate, and the piglets still had the protection. And retrospectively, it was ahead of its time. In general, is your feeling that we're doing a better job of fulfilling our contract with the pigs? Are we making progress in that area? Definitely. I think we're we're doing a much better job raising pigs than what the way my father did it with pigs in the bottom of the straw shed. The pigs are healthier. There's less disease. They're more productive. They're more efficient. Right. Things that are better for the pig are not counterintuitive to making more money because if the pigs are better off, they are doing better for the farmer as well. That's right. 
So how come pig farmers aren't making more money than they used to? I think they are at the moment making more money than they used to. The pig price, as you understand, Wendell, I know, is a commodity price and it's cyclical. I could show you a chart of it. Don't we, we don't need charts. <laughs> <laughs> you can't understand the world unless you have charts, Wendell. Well, that is the economist thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So talk about Ontario specifically and the, the hog industry in Ontario as it relates to the North American and the global market. Geographically, the hog industry in Ontario is well located in terms of access to uh, the inputs that are necessary for hog farms and the markets uh, in North America for meat. We're relatively close to major urban areas in North America. Of course, Toronto is close to us in southern Ontario. Major U.S. cities, Chicago is an eight-hour drive. New York is six-hour drive. Washington, D.C. is about 12 hours from where we are here. So a good percentage of the North American population is within a day's drive of where we are. There's a lot of consumers that would use the product that we can grow. Exactly. What's unique about Southern Ontario, though, is that it's still dominated in terms of pig production by independent family-based farms. As Uh, opposed to vertically integrated. Yeah. um, There are As you well know, there are contracting situations in Ontario, but it's family farms that are doing those contracts, and it it often is in other parts of the continent as well. But the idea of grow the corn, feed the pigs, feed the pigs, grow the corn, that sort of closed biological cycle is not exclusive to Ontario, but it's, it's unique to Ontario. And part of the reason for that is... The climate in southern Ontario. Corn is one of the major grains that pigs use, and corn utilizes nitrogen well, and hog manure is high in nitrogen. And so we grow corn to feed pigs, and we feed pigs to grow corn. And what's unique about southern Ontario is the climate that allows us to store corn as what you and I know as high moisture Mm -hmm. corn. If you're in the hog and corn business, Iowa is the center of the world. Iowa grows twice as much corn as the next four major corn-producing countries in the world combined. And almost a third of American pigs live in Iowa. Even though Iowa grows corn better than Ontario does in terms of corn yields, their climate is not as well oriented to storing the corn as high moisture. That's a contributor, I think, to the structure of the hog industry in Ontario. Ontario has some unique circumstances as it relates to packers as well. And that's something that you're quite familiar with being on the board of, of Conestoga Meats. Give us a bit of the background on, on how Conestoga came to be, why there was a need for a producer-owned packing plant like Conestoga. One of the challenges that we have in Ontario is the, is the same as the benefit, the geography. We're close to urban populations and consumers, and we're close to pig production areas, but we are not close to other Canadian pig production areas. That means if we want to buy pigs in the United States and bring them to Ontario for slaughter, you need to cross an international boundary. Not impossible. We ship pigs out of Ontario into the U.S. all the time, and it's a routine thing, And uh, but CFIA has some rules about bringing pigs into Ontario for slaughter. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Yes. They're 
rightly concerned about maintaining the health status of the Canadian herd, but if you're a meat packer, you can't buy pigs in Indiana or Illinois or Michigan or Ohio and say, well, we'll just let them sit at the border for 12 hours while CFIA does testing. They have to cross the border quickly and efficiently, and that doesn't happen. So there's been kind of a one-way valve on pig flow. Manitoba, of course, is too far to count on as a source of pigs, so a meat packer in Ontario can't view Manitoba as a, a source of live hogs for a slaughter plant. Right, so Ontario packers are basically using Ontario pigs. Yes. But there's certainly lots of pigs in Ontario to supply Ontario packers. There is. Pigs are leaving Ontario on a regular basis. Right. There's more pigs than than Ontario Packers can use. Yes. What specific challenges does that create? Uh, Well, from the Packers' side, I don't think it creates any challenges. From the farmers' side, buyers that are farther away typically will pay less. Costs money to transport pigs. Somehow that has to get paid for. So if the Packers paying the freight, pays less for the pigs. The packing situation here in Ontario, yep. is it healthy today? The last couple of years, in terms of economic health, the last couple of years have been very good years for meat packers in North America in general and in Ontario as well. Is the packing industry in Ontario healthy for farmers? I think the packing industry in Ontario is a concern for farmers. And people sometimes ask me how Conestoga Meats got started And my response to that is that the seed was planted in 1988 when my colleague, although he wasn't my colleague at the time, but Henry Peters stood up at an Ontario pork meeting and said that he thought Ontario pork should look into, or Ontario farmers should look into establishing their own packing plant. And uh, that seed caused Ontario pork the Ontario Pork Producers Association, to look into the economics of establishing a packing plant that would be potentially owned by the producer association. And I think correctly decided that it was not something that they as a producer association could do. The packing industry is very competitive in pork packing, beef packing, poultry, you name it, it's a competitive industry, and it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. But uh, Henry's comment at that meeting did start producers thinking, and there was a farmer now deceased who was instrumental in getting the Ontario producers organized. His name was Jerry Long. Jerry was a unique character. He had a, a unique way of speaking, and he called me one day out of the blue and said, now well, some of us have been talking about getting a producer co-op together to start a packing plant. We need to get some people involved that can make it across the street without using the traffic lights. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so so the fear would be that for farmers that there would be not enough packing capacity here in Ontario, and then they would be at the mercy of packers from farther away. Well, the risk is that there may be occasions arrive arise when a farmer just may not be able to readily sell pigs. They have to cross the border into the U.S., or, as has happened recently, they get trucked to Brandon, Manitoba. 
a long ride, longer than what we want to. Doesn't live up to our contract with the pigs to send them that far. So in 1988, this conversation starts. How long does it take before something concrete actually develops? Well, uh, Conestoga Meat Packers is owned by a farmer cooperative called Progressive Pork Producers Cooperative. And uh, the co-op was formed with Jerry Long's leadership and Henry's leadership in uh, 1994. And we purchased Conestoga Meat Packers as a plant. It was an established plant. And we purchased it in 2001. In between that time, Jerry said, well, we got to spend a few years going to school to learn about the pork packing business. And so we did that. We formed uh, uh, an association with Thornapple Valley in Detroit. And uh, actually, in conjunction with Thornapple Valley, purchased a, a plant in London, Ontario, that had been a green giant corn canning plant, with the idea that we would uh, renovate it and make a make it into a hog slaughter plant. And Thornapple Valley declared bankruptcy not long after we had done that, and so we bought their share. We the co-op bought their share, and then the opportunity to buy Conestoga came along, and we ended up selling the plant in London and um, and buying Conestoga Meat Packers. So, and where is it located? Uh, Conestoga Meat Packers is located just on the east side of uh, the city of Kitchener. And so it's still a producer-owned packing yes. plant? Yes. And what's the capacity there now? We're slaughtering about 30,000 pigs a week. There's about 70 or 75,000 a week slaughtered in Ontario. So Conestoga is 40%. And so that's a model that you would call a success story. Yes. And has led to some stability in the Ontario market? More stability, maybe? (laughs) Well, yeah. The uh, members of the co-op get paid for their pigs in in accordance with the um, profitability of the packing plant. And so if... If it's good times for packers, the farmers will get paid better than the open market. If it's bad times for packers, they'll get paid worse. They've got some skin in the game. Yes. Yeah. So you have probably become way more knowledgeable on the packing industry and and running a a slaughter facility than the average farmer. As co-op members and as directors... We have learned a few things about the packing industry, still have a lot to learn. And the packing industry, like slaughter facilities, that's one area when we talk to consumers and we try and highlight what we do in agriculture, we never talk about the slaughter of animals. Everybody understands that if I'm going to eat, that means an animal had to die. Yes. What do you think consumers think of when they think about a slaughter plant? Well, it's not a pretty thing. It's not something that is appealing to um, consumers in general. What would be the biggest misconception that you would like to set straight? Well, I think I'd like consumers to understand that that meat packers do care about animals. They want the animals to come to the plant healthy and in good condition. You know, like I said in the beginning in our contract with pigs, we want them to not see what's coming. We want them to be happy, healthy pigs. Right. Have a good life and a quick end. That's right. This idea that butchers care about animals, I think that would be a foreign concept to most city people. I think they 
picture the inside of a slaughter plant as some slightly deranged individual that takes pleasure in ending their lives. When in reality, as consumers and people that buy meat, we should be super thankful that there's someone prepared to take the responsibility of doing that job. Yes. And I think they take that job really seriously. Yeah, I agree. They do. It's the same as growing pigs and raising livestock. As we learn better ways to do things, we do them. Yes. And I I assume that's true in the packing industry as well. Absolutely. It's continuous improvement. What are some of the things that, that we are doing and can do going ahead to keep making that better? Well, I think understanding everything we can about what contributes to animal welfare and well-being. When pigs are stressed, it affects the meat quality. Cortisone levels rise. The meat quality is not as as good. So we want the pigs to, to be healthy, calm, handled well. We don't want them to be beaten or pushed or shocked or forced through gateways and chutes. We want them to be able to move calmly and comfortably from the farm to the plant and through the plant. Right. We had a case within the last year, the water for pigs. That was a court case that received way more media attention than it needed to. In fact, the mischief trial for the lady that gave water to some pigs on the way into the processing plant was in one courtroom, and there was a murder trial in the other courtroom, which was getting zero media attention. All of the media focus was on this trial of this lady that gave water to pigs, which is just the ridiculousness of the situation we're at. Where does this disconnect from consumers come from, do you think? And do you think that there's any way that'll change, or are we just down this inevitable road to lab meat and plant-based diets? Well, I think our responsibility in livestock agriculture is to continue to learn everything we can about the animals that we're responsible for. We provide them with their entire lives. Everything that affects their lives is under the control of livestock farmers and meat packers and processors. And so I think we have to keep learning everything we can about how to do all the processes that we do more efficiently. I think we also have to be cognizant of the points that you just raised about plant-based meats. There is Silicon Valley money going into developing plant-based hamburger that bleeds. And they're going to get very good at this. They're going to be able to make hamburger that even Wendell Shum may not be able to 100% identify. Agree. Technology so can the, do. The technology many is, we're learning a lot. And you mentioned lab meat as well. And tissue cultured meat is something that we need to be aware of. I think state. science is great. Science is spectacular. I sort of feel like maybe we could take the resources that are going into some of these technologies and funnel those into doing the things we already do good better making meat production as efficient well, as possible. I don't see it. I agree that we want to make meat respons- meat production as responsible as possible. I don't see it as an either or. I think that as a species, humans are going to continue to learn how to do things better. And growing meat in a Petri dish is something that we know how to do now. We don't know how to do it economically yet. 
we can still grow pigs and cattle and make beef and pork cheaper than the guys in the labs. But keep looking over your shoulder. Don't stick your head in the sand and just assume we're going to do things the same way. Exactly. That's a good message, Bob. I do want to circle back to the beginning. This has been really informative and educational, but but I, I have to know. What part of a pig gets used to make beer? There are clarifying agents taken from fats that are used in the production of beer and wine, for that matter. Not all beer and wine producers use them, but they are there and they do assist in uh, production of beer and wine. If you're tossing back a few, it is quite possible that there's a bacon in your pint. (laughs) It is possible. Well, Bob, thanks for taking the time and, and chatting with us. This has been a lot of fun. If people want to connect with you online, you are on Twitter. Yes, my Twitter handle is at Huntsbird. At Huntsbird. Huntsbird. H-U-N-T-S-B-I-R-D. Okay, thanks for coming on and talking with us. My pleasure. This has been the Ontario AgCast. Please go back to Twitter, give us a retweet, give us a rating on iTunes, and make sure to check out the Farm and Rural Ag Network, farmruralag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.